0: Mental Health and Life Beyond uh, episode 4 we have Dr. Martha Ku, and she is a pretty impressive person but i'm going to let her introduce herself and if Martha if you don't mind just uh, introducing yourself and talk a little bit about your background and how you got into what you're doing today if you you know let's hear that journey
1: all right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ian, for inviting me and also for what you do. I think it's invaluable to have people like you who want to get the world out about mental wellness and mental health and, you know, different alternative treatments for what we've had, um, you know, the past 50 years or so. So I'm a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst and I'm board certified in adult psychiatry and addiction medicine. And uh, wow, how I got here. I, um, well, I guess to go way back when I went to medical school, I was always very much much interested in neuroscience and the brain. And I really was thinking that I was going to go into neurology or neurosurgery. And when I hit the psychiatry ward, I just like fell in love. It was very clear, like that's where I needed to be. I think I was very much interested in the brain, but also sort of humans, you know, as a species and why yeah. we do what we do and how we respond. So how each of us is so individualized and responds differently. And um, so I went into psychiatry and I was at UCLA, very heavily biological program in terms of the residency training there and and so i was interested in getting a little more depth knowledge on a more psychodynamic psychoanalytic level so i did psychoanalytic training after um, my residency but at the same time you know i was doing this sort of depth psychoanalytic training i was actually doing outpatient ect at ucla make and, some money as i was opening my What is
0: what is that what is what is psychoanalytic training and what is ect if you don't mind me asking
1: Perfect. Now, thanks. I should I should clarify more specifically. So, ECT is electroconvulsive therapy. It's what is not so well known as shock therapy um, in terms of of how it's thought of. It's it's a highly effective and and very safe and done very well. You know, in in modern times, and it's still considered one of the most efficacious treatments we have. The side effect profile of electroconvulsive therapy obviously is difficult because there's exposure to general anesthesia and cognitive impairment. But so I was going back to the mid-1990s nineteen when I was there and TMS wasn't around, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation, which we will uh, hopefully talk about later. IV ketamine wasn't around and the resurgence of psychedelics wasn't around. So it was really medications, therapy, you know, and if you didn't respond to medications, then you know, people really did electroconvulsive therapy. And so I was working at UCLA. That was sort of my my way I was making money as I was hanging my shingle in private practice. And psychoanalytic training is is really a whole field of of psychotherapy, right? Psychoanalysis is what we're familiar with. Uh, sort of Freud would be considered the inventor, the, you know, the big proponent of psychoanalysis. And obviously since Freudian psychoanalysis, there's many more theoreticians and, and It's become a lot more object relational, which just means interpersonal and intersubjective. But it's still a kind of depth therapy where patients come to the office, you know, several times a week, usually three or four, typically laying on the couch, but they don't have to. It can be face-to-face. But the important parts of psychoanalysis are really understanding how our upbringing and our important relationships growing up, being a parental or coaches or teachers and, and our life experiences set our sense of self, our relationship to the world, our relationship to others. And when we can develop insight into, into those factors, I think we do a better job understanding the here and now and and have you know can also improve the way we cope with life so that's the the general stance of psychoanalytic therapy okay so I was doing those at the same time, which also like really combined, right? A very interpersonal therapeutic approach with a very biological scientific approach. And um, as I referenced, that was in the mid-1990s. And at that time, there was already talk of being able to do sort of what we can do with ECT, with magnetic energy, um, without the side effects. And so I just followed that of uh, pretty much for the next decade, and I was doing my outpatient private practice, which included, you know, medications, so pharmacotherapy, as well as the, the talk therapy. And when the first um, TMS device was FDA approved, and um, I just jumped on it, and so I added it. I had a whole cohort of patients who weren't really in remission right, from depression or anxiety or trauma with medications and therapy. And so having another intervention uh, to offer patients to me was invaluable, as well as something that, that wasn't medication-based. It's a whole other topic we can talk about, right? Oh. Like, I know you're very interested in mechanism of action, but like how yeah. do we think about depression? Yeah. Well, has really changed over.
0: I, I would love to hear, what, what is your definition of depression and what is your definition of anxiety? Like let's oh, start no, even at the root of that, because that's interesting to me. Like, I don't, I don't really know, like, I know what it is. I think I know what it is, but right. what is, yeah. What, what is, what are your thoughts on that?
1: That's a great question. And of, I don't think everyone's asked me really the definition. I think there's lots of ways, right. To think about that. So you, one could classically go with you know, the DSM, that's a big dia- diagnostic manual that we use in psychiatry that is just a collection of, of symptoms. We call that a syndrome. And so you can define depression that way. That's one way to define it, right? We use that for research purposes. We use that, I think, just for communication purposes. So in that definition, right, there is a, a person has to prevent with a at least a two-week period, and it has to be a significant change from prior with either a depressed mood or what we call anhedonia, that's lack of pleasure in life. And then that has to be associated with a certain number of other symptoms, which usually involve like energy, obviously suicidality, you know, sleep disturbance, appetite disturbance, motivation, things like that. And so that's one definition. I think it's really tricky because in that definition with a DSM, a criteria is functional impairment. And so, My argument with that would be, and I get, I get why that's there. We talk about, you know, the sadness in mental health in general, because I really can't treat somebody and build their insurance unless they have a quote unquote illness and the illness has to be functionally impairing. And then we have a diagnostic code, right? And then we have a C code and and so to me that's the sadness of it. So in my definition, I think the DSM helps with some of common symptoms, but it doesn't do to the heart of the fact that that many people walk around quite depressed and and still function. And so in my definition, I think I would I would include a lot of those factors, really just feeling sad when when one feels like there's no particularly reason, right? Mm-hmm. Not enjoying things as much as we know we could. Um, and then, you know, other sums that come with that, cognitive impairment, sleep disturbance. And so those those I think would would be more, you know, in my my rubric now, right? There's so much discussion about depression and really what is it. It presents in so many different ways I mean different people. I think a lot of uh, researchers believe that, you know, sort of we've lumped together people that don't really fit. And so depression is probably more than one thing. And it gets to like what we think even causes it. You know, it's that's changed historically, but it's also changed in what we've been able to ascertain from neuroimaging and improvement in in just the science that we have to investigate the brain, right? So we used to think of depression. Another definition, right, was people would call it a chemical imbalance. Yeah. People... Not great with their serotonin or their norepinephrine or dopamine. And now, and then it got extended really around TMS a lot with that it was a neuronal um, firing issue, right? And just our neurons weren't firing as they should in maybe one circuit. Now we have a lot of theories about depression is really, really a connectivity issue, right? That different networks in the brain aren't communicating well. And that's something we see, like even with the psychedelics, like what lights up in the brain, right? And the connectivity issue. And then there's theories of inflammatory illness, which we know is a part, there's neuropeptides now that people talk about, Mm -hmm. um, cortisol hypothalamic access. So there's just, I, I think, sort of, we're going to, it's going to be great. I mean, it's the most exciting time, yeah. right? To yeah. be in psychiatry and psychology, because I think we're just learning so much about the brain and the mind and the body. I mean, there we go. Like what, yeah. people would say, right? Depression is really maybe begins with a gut. It's a microbiome yeah. issue. It's... I left that one out. Yeah. yeah, So it's really exciting. The more we know, the more we realize we don't know, I think is really the theme of the, the game there.
0: It's, it's also amazing that Well, I guess, you know, for someone who's not a professional in this space, it's it's always refreshing when somebody who I consider an expert understands that this is like it's an ever changing field. There's no one like there is not a blanket answer that covers everything like hearing you have you have a lot of humility in that answer. That is just I don't know, it's it's exciting to hear you be excited about the fact that there's so much more to discover. It's I it's a beautiful thing and like it, it makes me think of all these questions about how you know with the inflammation and possible like traumatic brain injury like tbi how it could affect all these things there's so many ways that we can go here i don't want to get too off track immediately yeah so, no, we could
1: be here for hours yeah. right um so, it's crazy you no know,
0: you 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 graduated you went uh into practice and the, what was the what was the main pharmacological solutions that you were using and have they changed a lot since then and what what were those treatments doing in, in, inside of us? What 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 were those uh, supposed to be doing? It and have they changed? And what are they doing now? Uh, and then from there, we can. Ju- I would love to jump into the the these alternatives that you're doing. Just okay, a- great. Can, uh, yeah. do like a.
1: Good. And thanks exactly. for getting me backtrack on my story <laughs> because you know why I got here. But yeah, this is, I get so excited about everything. So, yeah, so, so I was doing, right, pharmacological intervention and therapy and private practice. And yeah, the main, the main medication. So that's what we mean by pharmacological events. Yeah. You know, everybody's familiar with Prozac, pretty much came out in the 1980s. People don't realize how young psychiatry is. You know, the first TCA came out in the 1950s. And when you think about that's a, that's a, you know, not a long time and
0: ago. Yeah, it is
1: bicyclic antidepressant.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So that was
1: like the first sort of mode of action for antidepressants. And when you say did did much change over the years or did things get better? Researchers and 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 drug developers got better in terms of improving side effect profile. So we went from a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac, which pretty much modulates serotonin in the brain. Uh, we had Well Welbutrin, which is another antidepressant that primarily focuses on dopamine. We went to select, we went to serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, which as you can hear brings in serotonin and norepinephrine. I think that gave better coverage for anxiety. In that SSRI category, Prozac, we made Improvements moving up to Paxil and Selexa and Lexapro, just other names, where we improved on the sexual side effects, which were you know were, were and are a big problem. Yeah. But I would I would say not much change. I mean, the idea yeah. of medications is right what they do in our bodies and our brains, like you say, is is literally alter the levels or the transmission of neuro of those main neurotransmitters that we know are involved in mood and anxiety regulation and the problem is is we don't really look back to the humility we don't really know how anything works is what i would say like yeah. even even when we talk about tms and ketamine, we we know enough about what it does you know yeah. petri dish or in the brain but we can't really say you know why it works right somebody yeah. takes let's say lexapro day one but it takes three to four weeks to really kick in and improve their mood. So obviously, there's a whole cascade of events that has to do uh, with improvement in in depression beyond just the at the cellular level, the transmission of serotonin. So to answer that question a little bit more, I mean the, the most novel change in in a pharmacological treatment has been the 2019 FDA approval of S-ketamine, right? Which is a novel mechanism of action, which is, which is different. So that would be, I would say the first one that came out different from just focusing on serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine. So we can talk about it later when we talk about ketamine, if you want. Um, So then when I added TMS to my practice, I, I, That was South Bay TMS. And now that has grown into Neuro Wellness Spa. So it sort of brings me to where we are today. I'm the medical director and and founder of Neuro Wellness Spa. And we have five sites in the Southern California area. And we do offer medication management We also offer Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation, IV Ketamine, Spravato. And so the whole point, though, of developing that business for me was to provide patients who didn't get into remission right, with medications and therapy, alternative treatments. And I think there's a lot of people that that go for help that get partially better, you know, in psychiatry. Um, but to me, the, the goal is really full remission and then maintenance of that and, and then even wellness, which I think is more than just the absence of illness. And so yeah. there's yeah. many layers. So that was the goal. I'm also the medical director of Clear Recovery Center, uh, which is a detox residential, also intensive outpatient for addiction as well as mental health. So I do that that also.
0: OK, very interesting. Uh, so the it was TMS, right? That's, yes. that, that the was the first, first, treatment. the first treatment that, that came up. That was the alternative. So what is that? How did it get developed when it got FDA approval? Was that a big thing or was people were people like, nah, you know, and then you were like, let's try this out. Like, what, what was that like? And then when we were first using it, what was that in patients? What was that like?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, no, really great question. So TMS stands for Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation, and it's actually been around since the the 1980s. So Tony Barker is credited for the modern TMS device, and he really developed it to show that magnetic energy could change electrical firing, you know, cortical neuronal firing in the brain. So just keep, get the neurons going, neurons are brain cells. In the mid 1990s, uh, Mark George and a couple other people, they were the ones that really did the, the research on using the application of TMS for the treatment of depression. It was FDA approved in 2008. And uh, no, it was a blip on the screen. I mean, I think yeah. unless you're a psychiatrist, I mean, really, even now, right? 14 yeah. years later, I bet if you asked 10 people, I bet if you walked out on your street right now and asked 10 people what TMS is, hopefully one would know, right? It's it's really interesting to me that it's it's still so not known, but it was a little bit of a blip on the screen. We can talk about how it works and what it does afterward, but it was, um, it be pretty much became on, like covered on most insurances around 2016, 2017. And although eight years seems long, that's actually really fast for uh, for an insurance. And I think that does sort of point to its efficacy and how much patients really love it. So what TMS does is it uses a high intensity electrical magnet that we calibrate to each individual's head in terms of the placement of it and the protocol we're using and it causes the neurons to fire so it Literally, I tell people it's a little bit like physical therapy for the brain, right? Gotcha. Okay. We um as a process, like you said, it's covered by a vast majority of insurances. It's FDA approved for treatment, uh, well, it's FDA approved for treatment resistant depression, which was defined as only failing one antidepressant trial. Most insurances require two or more.
0: Okay.
1: And it's also FDA approved for cigarette cessations. FDA approved for OCD. It's FDA approved for migraine with aura. So it has other Mm -hmm. FDA approvals, Um, but insurance companies pretty much are just covering it now for depression. And then um, at least in California, we have insurance that covers it for OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder also. And it requires, as a patient, when you come in, you just come in, you sit in a very comfortable chair. It looks a little bit like a dental chair. And uh, like you said, we calibrate the device to your head. And the way we do that is we find the place on your brain where we get hand movement on the opposite side. And that shows, because we, when we're treating, right, we're not treating neurons that we can see. We're not treating any motor neurons, right? So it gives us a way to, to see where we are, the amount of energy that's needed for you as an individual, then we move the, forward, the coil forward. There's different devices in terms of um, most of them do it for you in the sense of the measurements. And and then you feel a pulsing on your your head, right? The energy has to go through your hair and your skin and your scalp. It doesn't, there's nothing really tapping on your head, just the, the force of the, the magnetic energy. And you come five days a week, you're in and out about 20 minutes a time. You do that for six weeks, and then there's a little bit of a taper. And the beauty of TMS is like, when you ask what my patients said, I mean, wow. Like, the first thing I noticed, which is why I commented on the partial remission, is patients with TMS, to me, really get better. They get better on a whole different level of a medication. And it, it's a subtle thing. It's sometimes hard to put in words, but it's clear when you're, when you are treating people, you see the difference. And I think partly maybe it has to do with not having medication side effects maybe on board. Right. So, but, but people just pop out better. And so, but when I opened, it was like, really, it was not mainstream. I think a lot of people, even psychiatry thought it was a little woo woo. And I pretty much kept it quiet, to be honest. Like I wanted to wait and I wanted to treat enough people to know that I felt, you know, it was efficacious, it was good. And that became clear very quickly. So to go over a few things more about it, he said "You you come in five days a week, in and out about 20 minutes, covered by insurance, really no side effects. Some people feel a little, it hurts a little bit in the beginning, develop tolerance to that very quickly. Some people can get a little headache uh, day one. That's about it. People respond faster than with medications. So for with most people, after 10 sessions or at the end of two weeks, they're, they're noticing significant improvement. Not full remission, but feeling better. And um, go about your business right right before and after. No anesthesia, no cognitive impairment. So it's a whole world of difference compared to when we we're having to do um, ECT or electric convulsive therapy. During the active treatment, you're you can talk. People meditate. You can watch TV, right? At our at our site, we do a whole clinical initiative, so we combine things that I feel are really important for people to know. Anyway, psychoeducation about their illness, things about sleep hygiene, exercise, you know, community engagement, socialization, spirituality, things like that, to just sort of really augment the biological treatment. Um, yeah. So it's 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 just amazing. I mean, I will tell you, I think it's it's been the best thing that I've seen. You know, so far in in psychiatry, and it's just beautiful thing when these patients come in and and feel so much, especially people that have been on medications and multiple trials, and we're still sort of you know feel like guinea pigs, right? You just yeah. sort of try and works, it doesn't. You do another trial. It can be really demoralizing for someone who's depressed.
0: Yeah. Um, the so you're you're refiring these neurons. Is there the over the six weeks? Is the magnet moving to different parts? Is like because do you know exactly where to place it in the beginning? Or are you doing like a coverage where it's like, you're trying to hit as many spots over the six weeks as possible. So you're trying to refire. It's almost like a shotgun approach to refiring the neurons.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, no, it's, it's a very specific target. So we know it. up, right, in neuroscience to know, you know, once again, we can't really say causal association yeah, yeah. On, on functional magnetic resonance imaging and things like that. But we do know the circuit or we feel pretty really strongly. We know the neurocircuit involved in mood disorders and mood regulations. And so that's part of the left dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, which is about like your left forehead. Okay. Okay, and then there's fibers that are connected down. We, we pretty much say your anterior cingulate and your amygdala. Amygdala is a big emotional seat of the brain, and then those fibers wrap back forward to the the prefrontal cortex. So mm-hmm. we're targeting a very specific network in the brain, and we're just getting that network to fire. So we don't mm-hmm. move the coil okay.
0: around. Yeah. Okay. But very your point
1: is is really valid. We 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 treat in a different spot when we're treating OCD, right? Different network. Okay. Anxiety, we t- we tend to use right sided treatment. So that same network I described, but we use we use an inhibitory protocol versus an excitatory protocol on the left for for depression. So, you know, with TMS there's different pulse frequencies, different protocols, and different placements, as you say, depending on what illness, what diagnosis we're we're targeting.
0: Oh, super interesting. Is there is there any sort of um MRI or scans that you do before and after that like show? anything is it possible to see before and after for neurons firing and not firing through any of our like existing scans that we could do
1: yeah it's possible so so we don't it's not necessary uh for tms it's not necessary for the calibration there are other devices that use neuronavigation. navigation so the issue is it adds it can add significant cost so for yeah, a navigation sure. device yeah but we can send a patient they can get a brain mri Uh, these devices will incorporate that and target the area with neuro navigation. Like you said, we, you know, the when we pulse the, the site, there's a little wiggle room, right? We think about like the site we're targeting maybe sort of like a half dollar and the magnetic pulse comes out, maybe sort of like a, you know, pencil head. So obviously there's a little wiggle room, but when you calibrate just with the device itself, using that visual of the, of where on the motor cortex, you're getting the hand or the thumb movement, it's actually quite accurate. And then the other question was, yeah, like we can put, I could tell you, if you come to me depressed and yeah. I put your head. Camera, right like you say that network that that we're targeting would not be firing as robustly on the left compared to the right right which is sort of yeah. why it was chosen. and after somebody becomes not depressed then we see that that the firings have equalized out
0: um that, that must be pretty cool to see right like because uh, like it's very cool obviously to see somebody get better but right. to me i mean uh, maybe that's just how my brain works like to be able to actually see like Neurons not firing then firing it sounds incredibly cool.
1: Yeah, that yeah. would no, be great. Now, so just to be clear, like we don't get to we don't get to see that if you just do TMS because yeah. that you have to do a functional MRI, which yeah, you yeah. don't, but you no, I'm saying with see the it, functional right. MRI. Yeah. It's there. Now the but it does raise like this is, you know, another type of TMS that we do is called MERT therapy, which is magnetic e-resonance therapy. And it's it's a bit of a more personalized TMS. And and we do have things that patients can see and they love it. So the difference between MERT and regular TMS is with MERT, we do a quantitative EEG. Right. So that's when we put leads on somebody's head and we can see their their brainwaves. Right. The, the difference about the MERD is then that gets sent off to a lab. The lab sends us back actually like a protocol for that person in terms of pl- like you were saying, in terms of placement, and in terms of the TMS protocol. It's more geared for I mean, extraordinarily for autism spectrum disorders, traumatic brain injury, PTSD and dementia. So those Gosh. are the primary for uh, really good indications. And we repeat the EEG then every two weeks. So every 10 sessions, and we can see how the brain is changing and patients love that, right? Um, yeah. Just because like you say, everybody's different. Some people like the real concrete, right? Yeah. Um, corroboration of what's happening subjectively. So uh, we use MERD a lot for like you say, AS, autism, PTSD, um, traumatic brain injury. It's, it's incredible. Uh, to see the changes there and cognitive impairment.
0: Oh, wow, I mean I, that brings up a whole other questions about all those things and how <laughs> we're addressing them because everything in the brain is obviously there's so many uh, places to go. Wow, yeah, that's that's super interesting. So TMS, you were seeing all these amazing things, and did that make you seeing the results in TMS and understanding that you know I guess like um, traditional uh pharmacological drugs weren't being a be-all end-all and then seeing how few other practitioners were using tms was that frustrating at all
1: Oh, very frustrating. Yeah. I mean, it's, and even still now, I would yeah. say, you know, especially because in the beginning, you know, there wasn't a lot of insurance coverage. It was a, a co- more costly cash pay procedure. And and so that really limited its accessibility. But now, right, considering, you know, that it's insurance covered, like, yeah, it's still frustrating to, to just have so many people that aren't aware of it um, and see how long it's taken to to get out there. But it's it's so much better, right? So much better than it was 14 years ago. And it's great to just see at least the improvements with that. You know, it doesn't work for everybody. So that's yeah. that's the other thing, right? So, in general, we say there's about twenty percent of people that will not respond to TMS, which I think is also significant. You know, assuming proper diagnosis, biological depression, right? I think is just a testimony to what you're asking about before. I mean, I think not all depressions are the same, and we're not all the same as individuals. and And we need different things to improve um our mood and our functioning. But that was sort of why, like it captured a lot more people, right? With a TMS, but, you know, breaks your heart and somebody comes to you for six to nine yeah. weeks and they do TMS and they're not on remission, right? And so having other other options for people it, were important too. And, and so that's where the IV ketamine sort of came in.
0: Well, so what's that, so can you use TMS for anxiety as well? And I know you mentioned it's the other side of the brain and you said it's an inhibitor for anxiety. You're now for anxiety, you're, you're inhibiting the thing that's causing anxiety?
1: Yeah. What
0: is bad? that? What is that? Is that the, the only difference is everything else the same for anxiety? It's just that that specific mechanism is different. And then is the is the are you seeing the similarly, the results being that good for anxiety as well?
1: Yes. So Uh, I love your questions. So yeah, in general, left-sided excitatory treatment for depression, um, pretty much a standard protocol. And like at our site, we have a really high, we have like a 76% remission, I mean, response rate. And about a fifty four percent remission rate, which is which is which is really good. To put it in perspective, with meds after you know with with one trial of meds, maybe a couple trial, you get thirty re- percent response. So it's more yeah. than twice as effective, right, as most medications, and without all the side effects. Right side, we do and it's pretty much the same, but we do a, an inhibitory protocol, but targeting that circuit on the right side rather than excitatory. We get really good results with that. Now that being said, it's, it's just more like you know how much we don't know about mood and yeah. anxiety. A lot of people do great. You know, get a huge anxiety response with excitatory left. Like we're treating their depression; they have an anxious depression, or they have a an initial anxiety with a secondary depression. We get great results, and so you know, it's it's really sort of there's a lot lot to learn, yeah. right? With OCD,
0: you- we
1: yeah. Oh,
0: sorry, go ahead.
1: That's okay. OCD, we we treat um, more like on the forehead and the front, so different placement and and more inhibitory protocols.
0: And then for so do you think that there's this is a question i was i just was thinking about was is there a bigger spectrum of anxiety or depression in terms of like symptoms and you know like because these are both very broad terms right 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 and and now i think especially now post you know or not post COVID Mm -hmm. but you know where we are after the lockdowns and those and, and how it impacted mental health i think anxiety is a term that's thrown around all the time. It, it, what I guess like what to go back to the that first question where we did about depression, like what is your definition of anxiety and like how is it a broader definition than depression? Is it covering more like states of being?
1: Yeah, interesting. I haven't thought about that way. But yeah, I think I think arguably anxiety is broader. I, I I think it's just a nomenclature issue, right? A lot of people we quite stress with anxiety. Yeah. Um, and fear, right? We always say fear is is healthy, normal. Anxiety is is what we sort of want to treat. Some anxiety obviously is good. It serves us well because it's in for me. You know, I think unlike to me, that's the biggest difference, right? I'm hard pressed. I like read about it. I, I don't know what advantage there is to being depressed. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like depressed. as a species, right? Yeah. Like I just really, th- that's, that's hard. Whereas anxiety, like it does give us information. Right. Yeah. Um, when we're feeling anxious, I think it's a time to look okay and really reflect. Like, I mean, we should reflect and look when we're depressed too, but I mean, <laughs> with anxiety in particular, right? Like, wow, yeah. I'm noticing that and, and what's going on and what do I think is causing that? Because I think it's not necessarily jumping to a medication or, you know, therapy is always helpful, but not a medication or TMS, you know, for anxiety. So I think it is a much broader area, like you're saying. And I think there's, it's just really like a, Probably just more of a nomenclature. The DSM obviously has a very set, fixed definition of anxiety, also, which which has a lot of crossover with depression, with the sleep disturbance, right, irritability, right, Um, some of the things. But it's a broader definition, and I think in general, because TMS is FDA approved for depression, we're we're much more often treating depression, and and like I said, we notice that uh, you know there's a big comorbidity, just means happening at the same time of depression and anxiety, and and they tend to. um, What's interesting is Some people both get better. And where I think we really see the difference and the different sides when we treat TMS is when you, what we see with patients where sometimes when their depression goes away, they notice their anxiety a lot more. Yeah. Those people I would consider like they either have really two things going on or they're really maybe a primary anxiety disorder person and because they've been anxious so for so long, they end up with a depression also. And those people, that's where it's really helpful. We can, they can come back and then we can treat on the right side and, and pop out their anxiety also. But sometimes there's a teeter-totter with anxiety and depression and sometimes they're either both present or both go away. So Sort of, you know, either say like an anxious depression or maybe two separate disorders.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we have TMS and then, you know, it works very interesting and effective treatment. And then we have the new kid on the block, okay. which was 2019 FDA approves ketamine therapy. So, what, well, or are you sorry? I, I'm not sure if I'm saying it. No,
1: no, you're absolutely yeah. right in terms of Spravado. Okay. So just to separate them out because I think this people all we all like like you like a lot of people or patients that come to me will just say ketamine, but I think it is a little important to separate them out because you're absolutely correct. Two thousand nineteen was the FDA approval of Spravato, Spravato, but that's a very specific nasal ketamine, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. It was more around 2000 that people were aware of intravenous—that's IV, right? Needle in your arm and and putting it in that way in a proper medical setting was (laughs) was could be super helpful for depression and with a a more rapid response. So that became well known. Um, in 2000, ketamine is a just we should probably say what ketamine is. Ketamine is yeah. (laughs) Yeah, let's
0: jump into everything about ketamine and what can we even start with? Like what was because you know i know i've done a little bit of research about some psychedelics and the history of them and you know you have uh you know you had some we obviously we have the more recent stuff out of like uh john hopkins mm-hmm. and uh, maps but uh it goes back to i'm forgetting his name it's uh they call him like the father of uh psychedelic well
1: hoffman i don't know who you, hoffman discovered lsd right yeah that was that was
0: that was way back uh, but the first studies were done in the sixties, right? Yes.
1: Yeah. You're and, absolutely and right.
0: With, um, yeah. The Harvard, uh, professor.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm blocking too, but he did the mystical studies. Um, Leary. Yes. Leary. Yes. yes. Leary.
0: Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <Bothered> me. For...
1: <laughs> yeah, no, It's then that's sometimes a harder, right. You try to think of a person or a word right then it just escapes, but we got it.
0: Yeah. Um, so we have, so what, I, I don't know if he spoke about ketamine, but what do you know, of like what, what the history of ketamine in terms of like, when did it first pop up? And when did it start? Like, you know, you mentioned how in the early 2000s, it started being known as a possible therapeutic, uh, I guess, is that a good term? Yeah, perfect
1: term. Um,
0: you know, yeah. let's so go we can over go of, if, if, okay. or of of what you know.
1: Sure. Uh, so, ketamine. Ketamine was discovered, I think, in 1962. It was FDA approved in 1970. It's FDA approved as an anesthetic, okay. right? And to this day. Um, that's the FDA approval. So any use of of ketamine in whatever formulation, we can talk about the differences, IV or, or oral, right, through your mouth or IM, which is a shot in the arm, like any use for for depression or, or mental health reasons is off. We consider it off-label. So it's standard enough now, like we there's enough research and, and there's enough standardization of care that we all feel in the medical community that it's very safe and effective, but it doesn't have FDA Indication, um, and it, and it won't get it because this is what happens in terms of sort of money and research, right? So ketamine yeah. is a very cheap formulation; it's non-generic, you know, it's it's a generic one. Yeah. It, it's and so no one's going to go back and and do those, excepting a sort of fly ketamine, which is a, t- a typical just one portion of the ketamine that came out for Spravato. So 1962 discovered, 1970 FDA approved for anesthesia. Um, It's really on the World Health Organization's list of essential medications. A lot of people don't know that. And I like to point that out because people get anxious when they think about ketamine and everybody says, oh, it's a horse tranquilizer, which they do use it a lot in veterinary medicine. But we use it tons in kids. And and that's the the beauty of ketamine. It has one of the best safety records for any anesthetic because it doesn't really cause any respiratory depression, meaning it doesn't cause any difficulty breathing, right? People do anesthesia. Yeah, that's what they're mainly concerned about. It can have a little dose-related increase in heart rate and blood pressure, but, you know, and then other side effects in terms of when you're waking up, you feel like you're coming a little bit out of anesthesia. That's sort of the history of it, as we already talked about, 2000 sort of discovered as a rapid-acting antidepressant. It works as an NMDA a receptor antagonist. That's a certain receptor in our brain. And once again, we don't exactly know how it works. The theory is that there's a, you know, a bunch of factors that come on after it's NMDA antagonism and really it increases glutamate activity. Glutamate is one of the the most prominent excitatory neurotransmitters in the brain. So we know it affects glutamate, we know it affects um, neuroplasticity, which is sort of like, there's actually, I mean, this is super cool. If you like looking at things, there's like literally, (laughs) oh yeah. Look at the literature, like literally, you know, our neurons have little dendrites with little fingers that come out and they have little spines on them. And when people do ketamine, like there's actually growth of those dendritic spines. And we can see that under the microscope. So it's literally causing more neuroplasticity, better communication, better connections. We also think there's some pathway through brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is just a big, also another important chemical in the brain that has to do with neuronal growth and firing and connectivity and potentiation and learning and all those things. So sort of, we know what it does on the transmitter level and we have theories of, of how it works, but it's, and then the other thing to know about it when you're comparing, it's, it's really classified as a dissociative agent. So it's not really classified as a, as a classic psychedelic or a class or a, class, a psychedelic period. Doesn't work on a, certain serotonin receptor, which the psychedelics do. So it's a dissociative, but in high, in, in low IV doses or higher oral doses, people can have a very psychedelic experience on it. And when um, you
0: say a psychedelic experience, let me, let's, let's even define that. What does that mean? yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, most, it's different for everybody, right? But the common elements would be sort of a, a difference of time and space, right? A sense of, of maybe it's time seeming very long when it's short. Um, there can be visualizations, right? That are seen colors and lights. There can be a sense of like a synesthesia, which is where you're like smelling sounds or like tasting, you know, colors or whatever. There can be a, a sense of of really... I wanna say like mystical experience or a spiritual or a unity, right? With the community in the the world. And I think importantly for when we use it in terms of uh, treatment, a perspective that comes across, like a little objectivity, a little removal from us as an ego, as one with what's going on within us or around us, and and just bringing in a different perspective. And I think that's the whole other part of depression we haven't talked about. But um, so I think those those would be maybe common elements of a quote-unquote psychedelic experience.
0: Okay. Uh, I appreciate you explaining that because I I say psychedelic, and I as we're talking about it, I realize there's probably people. I mean, I didn't even know the actual definition. I'm I'm saying this word a lot in my life, and I'm like, I don't yeah. actually know if I could define it. So I think it's always like good to be like, oh yeah, that's. That's what it means.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really like that you're, you ask all the definitions and I think it just is another example of like how difficult communication is, right. And, and how important it is in, in, in life in general between us and all conversations, but in medicine, because it's the same thing. Like I I caution patients can come in and say, I'm depressed, but we don't let them just say that, like, well, what does that mean to you? Because it's very different. And what we might choose as a treatment will be very different depending on how they describe their depression same thing psychedelic we all have a sense of oh like we know the 60s and lsd (laughs) we sort of have a sense right the beatles but (laughs) you know like well what is it and it still gets you know i think it's still a hard definition um but but hopefully i covered main elements of it
0: Mm -hmm. i I think you did and uh if anyone hears that listens to this and has any more questions about it feel free to throw it in the comments so when so, so when when was the first time You started to when when did when was your first interaction with this as a therapy and then when did you start offering it? And then like what what did that look like? And then what does it look like when somebody when when you at your clinics offer it as a therapy?
1: So uh, we added IV ketamine to Neuro Wellness Spa in 2017. And mainly, like I said, I, I just wanted uh, other options for patients. It's sort of why we added spravata, right? Um, that if meds weren't working and TMS wasn't working, like what other things could we do? We There's many, and we can talk about this, there's, there's many ways to do ketamine in terms of formulations and process, but I come, as you know, from a very psychoanalytic background. And 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 I also really like the idea of of knowing exactly what dose somebody's getting in terms of like absorption. So I chose to do the intravenous route at Neuro Wellness Spa. So, and that's all we do outside of this bravado, right? Which is different, but we don't do the intramuscular. We don't do oral. And to know about ketamine, there's also a different therapeutic strategy. Some people use it in a, what we consider sort of a psycholytic capacity, which is a lower dose in the context of talk therapy to sort of disinhibit somebody and open them up and talk at the same time versus more of the psychedelic dose. Yeah. So we use the IV. I like that because I like that for many reasons. One, 100% bioavailability. So I know exactly yeah. what's going in the patient is seeing versus... And
0: real quick, for those of us, you know, anyone listening who doesn't understand what does bioavailability mean?
1: yeah it's sort of like what the cells in your body see. So when we put when we put ketamine uh, directly into the vein, one hundred percent of that ketamine is being processed and metabolized by your body versus like if somebody takes ketamine orally, it might be t- it might be twenty percent. but there's and a range
0: because, like because 10- there's stuff lost in digestion and and this Perfect. for anyone listening also applies to if anyone has ever taken a supplement or vitamin C, mm-hmm. you know. When we take anything orally, we the bioavailability isn't as high as if you got it intravenously. Just wanted Absolutely. to out that for anyone listening, because that's bioavailability is something that is super important to know about.
1: Yeah, super important. Yeah, it's great, right? It goes into our stomach. We digest some. It goes, but mainly we we have processes through the liver. So it goes through what we call first pass or, or hepatic processes, and that metabolizes it down. And there's there's change. There can be huge changes in absorption, drug drug interactions with other things you're taking. There's a lot of things. But whereas we when we put it in the vein, we know it's like 100 percent there, and it avoids all that you know absorption issue and digestion and metabolism issue. I mean, it still gets metabolized. At the end, but in terms of the initial um, impact, so I liked knowing that 100 of what was going in was going in. I also like the IV because you know we use we can we use small doses and you can always stop an IV, right? So it's very rare that I, I think in in what five six years there's only been two people that we chose to stop the IV because they had some anxiety. But the nice thing about ketamine, like it's very fast acting, and when it's intravenous, you stop the pump and and then five minutes, it's, it's done. Right. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you, you put an injection in somebody's arm and their muscle, like it's, it's going to be in there for a couple hours and that's yeah. the way it is the same thing orally. And so I like that formulation. And then I, and then my view of ketamine really is, we do the infusion. Well, I'll talk about, so maybe that, so the patient comes in, we've done obviously psychoeducation about what ketamine is, we do preparation. So telling them what they expect, because like you ask, like what's a psychedelic experience? And so giving them some, some understanding of what that will be like, and then also setting some intentions. And so what is the goal? And um, we know in these psychedelic processes that set and setting are really important. So set refers to sort of your mindset going in. It refers to sort of ideas that you have, right? You're, you know, you're a lot of that the setting is the setting you're in as well as you know the larger cultural and social setting and that really that really makes a difference in terms of the outcomes of these so we we work hard with patients to ensure the proper set setting uh, that they're prepared that they set an intention come in the room uh, we lower the lights. We have them wear an eye mask if they feel comfortable. So that's a very internal experience. Uh, we have a nurse, we never leave the patient alone. So nurses with the patient the entire time. Uh, we monitor pulse proximity, which is their breathing, even though there's really nothing to worry about, but safety measures. We do, uh, you know, we do, we measure their heart rate and blood pressure throughout. And we just start the infusion. Oh, we also have soundtracks. So people can bring in their own music, but we have set soundtracks that that to choose from also that sort of guide it and go with the flow of the experience. Um, So tailored for that. And so they put on their headset, they put on their eye mask, we leave them alone, you know, and they have their experience. And then we ask them to journal. When they get home, as much as they can remember. And then uh, we do not have therapists in the house. We, we have them process with their own therapist. Or if they haven't had one, when they come to us, we make sure that they're hooked up with a therapist who can do more integration afterward to process. So that's one style of the ketamine. And like I said, I really like that. I like the safety of it. I like the known efficacy of it in terms of the literature. And I like that I, I really believe in the mind's capacity to heal itself. And I feel like I'm always reminding patients, I, I yeah, the ketamine as a substance we know does something. We know that from spravado, but I feel like therapeutically there's so much healing in and the experience that they have and then how they process that in therapy. And I think that that's invaluable. And that's sort of why I like that strategy.
0: Uh, have, the best. Have you done it?
1: Yes, I have. I I've done the, I, I've done IV and I've done the intramuscular also.
0: And what was your experience like with the IV?
1: It it was, it was great. I mean, I, uh, I think it's a little, I, I did it so I could have the experience in, and like also understand what it's like for patients. I'm, I wasn't struggling with depression at the time. And so it's harder for me to comment on that quality of it. But yeah, I think it's, it's, I was, it was comfortable for me. I, I had a very much sense of oneness and unity, you know, what felt to me like the world I definitely had. I felt like I was under the experience for hours and hours. It was the IV infusion I should have said is 40 minutes long. I I, I actually felt like I was sort of visited by, I have one daughter who's not in communication with me and I have my father who passed away in 2005 and I felt like they were sort of there. It was a very interesting, like a loving presence without a sadness. And so I think that helped me when I talk about like perspective. Yeah, just feeling very like, like they were there and things were okay. I saw a lot of purple for some reason. I I mean, I wore a purple sweater going in. So I wondered, but I saw a lot of purple and, and yeah, I've never done, I mean, it was interesting. I had a lot of, uh, you know, I've never smoked marijuana, i never smoked a cigarette. Uh, so for me, the ketamine was the first thing that I did that was, you know, psychedelic. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, it was, it was like a really insightful and eye-opening experience i think for me i had a little more nausea side effect can be nausea at our site we we uh do we pre-medicate with odansetron which is an anti-nausea medicine and usually helps a lot i did it elsewhere but to me that was the only negative thing that i had um afterward i just had some some nausea
0: oh well thank you first of all thank you for sharing that experience because oh, uh, you're welcome it's it's always nice to know that the person who is facilitating this whole thing has experience, has, has that understanding. I I think for me, like, that's, that would be reassuring. How many is it normal to have one set? Like the people who come in for this therapy, is it one session? Is it multiple sessions? I know you have also the downloading with the, their individual therapist afterwards, but is there more than one IV session or is it usually just one session followed up with therapy to go over those, that session?
1: Right. Perfect. So no, there, so a series is usually six to 12 sessions. We usually do two to three a week. And I think that's some of a misunderstanding in the literature and in sort of a sadness for me because patients have read or they come in and they think, oh, one infusion, I'm going to be all better. Yeah. Now the truth is one infusion often um, eradicates active suicidality, which is really interesting. So we use it a lot for that too. So, you know, we can have somebody come in with, with some active suicidality. They can do one or two infusions while we're waiting to get their insurance authorization for their TMS and then they move over to TMS and it's a really nice adjunctive oh. treatment for that. Yeah. So we use it a lot in that capacity and I love it for that. Um, you know, to compare the two, TMS is a much more durable, I think, treatment in terms of uh, depression efficacy um, versus the ketamine. Ketamine's great, but typically TMS, people last about a year. They can come back for boosters. It's Once it's on, your insurance and covered. It's covered up to, literally, twice a year. Uh, ketamine, we see people maybe dip more around three months, four months, but then come back. They don't need to do a series of six to twelve. They can come back and do one or two infusions. Um, so it's 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 you know, listen. When you're depressed and you find something that works, anything is great. But so yeah, right? I tend to I tend to gear a little more for the TMS just because of the. Cost, you know, it's cost-effective on insurance, and you can, you know, with ketamine, there's certain things to know. Like you cannot drive home after ketamine; it's considered anesthesia. Uh, right, the whole process takes about an hour and fifteen minutes, so different from twenty minutes in and out. Drive yourself to and fro, like no side effects. So, so for those reasons, but ketamine, ketamine's great um, as an adjunct. So they come in and answer the questions. Usually a series of six to twelve. Um, they can feel better right after; it just doesn't last. I tell people, some people that very night, the next day they feel a lot better. But then I tell them like, you know, you're probably gonna be back at baseline in a couple of days. But then as you progress to the series, you get a more sustained response. And for patients just to have an evening or a day, right, yeah. feeling good, um, provides so much more hope. And and that's invaluable also in in treating people that are suffering from depression. So it is nice in the rapidity of the you know, the response with the ketamine.
0: I think it's also very interesting that like, there isn't a, there's not, you do this and everything's done. Like there, that doesn't, it doesn't seem like that exists. And, but that also sort of signifies pretty much every issue that we have in life. Like there's not, everything is a continuous battle in terms of our health and our mental health like this is not there's no like there's no pill to make sure you're healthy there's no pill to make sure you're mentally healthy this is uh it's like working out or any other thing it's it's this journey over time and even if something works great you have to do it every so often to make sure it's like it's you know it's your mental workout almost uh. yes yeah. I say?
1: No, you're absolutely. And that's a big part of the psychoeducation we do for patients because it's like you said, you know, life is, you know, we're there's there's always stuff happening. But even any chronic illness, we consider it a chronic illness. We can get it into remission. Right. And then people can work really hard. They have to do other things. Right. Yeah. And- you said, like their, their exercise, their stress level, their life work, you know, work balance, their, their nutrition, right? Their sleep habits, like how well they're doing with all of those is predict a little bit of how long they'll stay in remission. But at the end of the day, uh, we do consider these illnesses, you know, genetically based or prone and, and fairly chronic and we can get them in remission and there's a lot we can do to keep them there but most people with any of these treatments are going to have a time where they'll they'll dip again back and the important thing is noticing it having insight and in getting in early because yeah. the earlier yeah. you get in the faster you pop back out and the less treatment that's needed so it's important
0: what what effect do you think you know in these other factors of diet exercise sleep how big of contributing factors? Do you think those are uh, versus, you know, like, I guess, you know, you have your, your, your nature, like your genetics, and Mm -hmm. or your family environment, or whatever the those other factors are, like, how big of the factors are those diet, exercise and sleep to contributing to these mental health issues, because obviously, they contribute. But you know, I don't know exactly what scale I'm looking for. But how big of a contributing of contributing factors are they to these issues?
1: Yeah, that's that's a a great question. I mean, I I think they're not causal. Maybe is one way I would say yeah. it. I don't think we think just diet, nutrition, like exercise, like would co- like doing poor on those fronts would cause it. But I think they're they're very important, like that and stress, in terms of when a depression rears its ugly head. So where I like I like to sort of say it is, yeah, I think you have to have you know some people have the genetics for being able to be depressed and some people don't. And so I I think there is very much a 50%, let's say, genetic component. When it shows up, I think, is a uh, sort of just the accumulation of life stressors, whether it's adverse childhood events, uh, traumas that happen along the way, chronic poor sleeps, chronic stress, chronic poor diet. I think those those are at least a 50% factor in terms of like when it shows up. And I and then I think once again, biological treatment and generally needed, um, therapy is biological too, right? We you know therapy yeah. changes the way neurons fire. But I think then those factors become really significant in terms of keeping a recurrent illness at bay. So I think, like you say, how important they are, I think they they alternate depending on what state we're in. And when we get somebody in remission, then if they can really focus on all those things you listed, diet, exercise, stress, trying to avoid as much as we can, like huge traumatic things in our lives, then then we're gonna we're gonna do better for a longer period of time.
0: Yeah, that's understandable. So I guess we have TMS, we have ketamine therapy, and then the new i guess the two new things that everyone is talking about is psilocybin and mdma right is it and then yeah those are the two new in terms of what we consider classically like um psilocybin is a psychedelic mdma i don't think would be considered that i think it's considered a uh, don't know it's a it's a it's a stimulant in a way i guess but i'm not sure I, I, my taxonomy on the, the classification uh, is off, but you know, are those the two that is where most of the focus is uh, in terms of like new therapy? Is that is that where most of the yeah, focus is? Yeah, and I know, think, I think
1: uh, LSD also. So oh, I right. think, so to just answer your question, we do consider MDMA uh, psychedelic. So, right, we consider yeah. ketamine a dissociative agent, but it can have psychedelic capacities yeah. at doses. And then... But the classic psycho, um, psychedelics, we really consider to be psilocybin, um, like DMT, which is an ayahuasca, right, LSD, because those are the ones that act on the that specific serotonin, the 5-HT2A receptor, and um, are an agonist, so increased serotonin. MDMA, we do consider a, a psychedelic. Uh, but you're absolutely correct. It has a very different mechanism of action. So it works more on release of serotonin, op- norepinephrine, and dopamine. And so it's considered, uh, it has more stimulant qualities. And in terms of the research, yeah, I mean, the big like NYU and Johns Hopkins and MAPS, I mean, most of the research, most has been on um, MDMA, particularly for PTSD, for trauma, um, psilocybin, particularly for like depression. And addiction out in the community. I think there's a there's a lot more going on um, and in discussion with like microdosing, and that's where mm-hmm. I think LSD comes up a lot again too. So microdosing of psilocybin, not microdosing of MDMA, but microdosing of psilocybin and LSD would be. But I there there is a there's a, a gentleman I don't remember his name in New Zealand who has a really good study. He's re, he's doing other aspects of it, but he did a study on microdosing LSD, which was actually pretty interesting. And his whole band, which is gets back to the set and setting is like when they've tried to do like little micro doses of LSD in the lab, like patients don't report anything. But no. when, when they got, they went through a process in New Zealand and they got approval for the patients to take their LSD at home and they, they, they had some fixed dosing, which was not great for the study, but, but they showed huge, you know, improvements in like creativity and, just sort of well being indexes and stuff when people could take it in their natural setting. And so I think that raises an interesting question on the research and these for these, you know, moving forward. Now, that being said, you know, MAPS, the organization I know the most in terms of the MDMA for PTSD, their setting, even though it was a research protocol, was very therapeutic. You know, it's not like a hospital lab. I mean, it yeah. looks like a normal living room with couches and people are relaxed. And, and I think um, they've had amazing outcomes uh for ptsd with the mdma uh they're on their phase three trial so uh that's you know and that setting is set up to be much more like a home environment
0: yeah and so probably we'll be seeing that over the next couple of years the integration of that into i'm sure your clinics will be integrating that if it gets approved but yes, sir.
1: We hope. Absolutely. We hope so. Gotcha. so yeah, they're they're predicting, hopefully, you know, MDMA in 2023, FDA approval for PTSD and um, hopefully psilocybin in 2024 is what I'm hearing. I mean, all that could change. I think the question uh, that's on everybody's mind is what, you know, how this approval is going to be. So like we could go back to spravado, which is the nasal FDA approved ketamine, right? It has a very specific process with the FDA. You have to be RAM certified, which is a you know risk mitigation strategy. So you have to be REM certified. Patients have to come into the office. You're not allowed to give them their spravata to take it home. They have to come in. They have to sit for two hours. We have to monitor their blood pressure. They pretty much come twice a week for four weeks and one weekly for four weeks, and then it depends. Um, and so there's really a set protocol. So the 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 worry, I guess, or the concern, like the MDMA trials for PTSD have been like these eight hour days with a psychiatrist and a therapist in the room with the patient, and then they stay overnight.
0: Yeah, that's feasibility yeah. that is a nightmare, I'm assuming
1: there you go, right so i think we're all curious like okay if fda approval comes what are the you know and and i do think it has to be monitored i mean these are this is the the problem right like we really want it to be done well we want it to be done right and then how do you do that in a way that's feasible right because yeah like at our site we don't have rooms where people could spend the night and we don't have two people we can assign for eight hours right it's like it's cost prohibitive right so i think that will be that will be interesting to see uh what happens there
0: is there also a worry on the inflexibility of the program because you know obviously there's a lot of different applications right now in the ketamine uh therapies and right. we almost get to see whatever works best over the course of you know however like you know you're doing it one way you're seeing success somebody else could see success doing it another way there's a flexibility that's allowed based on the fact that it has this other approval purpose, but if MDMA therapies get approved specifically into this program, it's going to be restrictive for just that program. And is there a worry that it is that restriction is going to be prohibitive?
1: Well, that may, yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head because that's that's the issue with Pravato. you right. Yeah. It's it, but I, once again, for good reason because I I well, I mean, it's comfort level. Maybe you're pro, like I I don't call in you know lozenges for people to take at home or yeah. nasal spray. There are people that do that and do it safely and well. But I think it's been difficult with Spravato because of that, that people have to come in the office for two hours. I mean, that's pretty disruptive in your day. Like take it, you know, there and the staffing for that. And so, yeah, I think there's the rigidity of perhaps what would be an FDA approved protocol for MDMA or psilocybin might make it quite difficult for for licensed practitioners to do it in a legal way, which is I'm a licensed Practitioner. So I want to do things in a legal, yeah. right? And, and known like with research based, efficacious manner.
0: And then for the psilocybin, because it is, you know, it, psilocybin comes from the muscaria mushroom, right? Uh, uh-huh. Absolutely. Uh, so that's a fungus, right? Uh, if it gets FDA approval, will it, how are they going to do, do you know anything of how they're going to create it in a lab?
1: Yeah. Well, they do have pharmaceutical sort of grade psilocybin as okay. my, like, that and that's what they really might do for the studies. And so yeah, I think if the FDA approval came, it would be really for, you know, uh, a formulation that is, you know, like standard and FDA approved. But yeah, right. Mushrooms grow in the wild and people grow them now and people have kits and they grow them in their bathrooms. And so there's lots of, you know, it's not standardized, right? Yeah. But back to what you say about vitamins too. Right. Um, you know, we sell tons of vitamins in, in, the, in the the supermarkets and the drugstores, and and pe- there are people, a lot of people don't realize the same thing you say about bioavailability and everything. Like these, these there can be huge differences, right, yeah. in terms of how much we really get from you know a certain vitamin A at a certain drugstore and a certain brand, and from different things. So when I have patients, that I say like, listen, if you're going to start like vitamins, like one at a time. <laughs> and they're on 20 things. I'm like, well, what's doing what? Like, yeah. I don't know. I start, you know, start one at a time. And if you, and if it really helps, you know, take it for a month. If you're really seeing difference, great, then stay on it. But then, then really try to do the same brand in the same store because they tend to buy them in bulk from, from the same distributor. And pretty much the bioavailability should be the same, we hope, but don't yeah. cross brands and move around as possible. So obviously the psilocybin, in the community is going to have, you know, has greatly different strains of, of strength and, and then efficacy and responses you know the whole i mean there's a whole other culture around uh, you know taking these products over you know they're they're from traditional you know yeah like cultures and and so there's just the appropriation of these also is a whole other topic of discussion Right. And but when you when you talk with people, sure, you know, really in a shamanistic fashion or that kind of culture, like they strongly believe that how the, the product's been handled in itself. Right. Yeah. And asked on is going to change back to like the set and setting. But yeah, yeah. So, yeah. How this pharmaceutical grade psilocybin will be well, is interesting, right? It's yeah. very different um, from mushrooms walking in nature, you know, in the wild.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be, uh, I mean, it's gonna be fascinating one way or the other to see, um, Absolutely. the, are there any alternative therapies that we haven't discussed that, that are being used for, you know, for, for treatment, uh, or anything else that's. Yeah, has we haven't discussed it's interesting to you or that you're using. Yeah,
1: really, really good question. I, I did, I made an error, I guess, when I was saying Spravato, like sort of a novel mechanism because recently there was a medication-approved um, availability that is a combination of dextromethorphan, which is cough syrup, right? Really? Yeah, um, I guess I don't know if it's easy, different, but they, so NMD receptor antagonist, right? Similar to ketamine or Spravato, but in cough syrup and they combined it with Welbutrin which is the antidepressant we know, bupropion. And the wellbutin is only in there to to have a longer mechanism of action for the dextromethorphan. And that was FDA approved. And so uh, I haven't used it in any patients, but that's a, that's an antidepressant that's combining a dopaminergic agent with an uh, NMD receptor antagonist. And then and it's really costly still like now because it's Right, non. There's no generic formulation. I think there's there's research being done with uh, neuropeptides, like neurohormones. Uh, I don't know tons about it, but I think that's a whole other area uh, to look at. And then I think also anti, like the microbiome research and anti inflammation yeah. products, I think are also going to be very interesting. I, I think that there's there's like I say, I think it's a great time to be in psychiatry. I think a lot of a lot of energy and passion is going into figuring out how we can feel better in our lives. I think COVID, for how terrible COVID was, it did bring to the forefront the importance of mental health and and accessibility. And, and so I think there's just so much more open discourse and less stigma against mental health. I think we're going to see a lot more hopefully research going into what's going to help people.
0: Yeah, I have a, a slightly different question. And, you, sure. you know, let me know if you're uncomfortable talking about it. But do you mention yeah. how when you tried the ketamine therapy, you weren't experiencing depression, but the way you yeah. phrased that made it sound like you have experienced depression before.
1: Absolutely. So I felt, I've, yeah, I felt, I felt depressed really starting in like medical school and then more in residency. I think it's a good example. Also, I have genetics in my family uh, for depression. And then those times in my life were very challenging in the sense of you're working, you know, 120 hours a week, get two days off a month. Like as an intern, it was really bad. I was a big dancer in my life and I, I even though there had been times when I couldn't do it as much near, you know, a little bit during college, but I did it even my first two years in medical school. But when I hit the the wards and the hospitals and then clearly residency, I sort of gave up dance completely. And so I think there are a lot of factors in terms of like poor sleep and poor diet and and lack of balance and lack of creativity, you know, and the, an outlet that I really had. And And that's when I actually went in, I started to get therapy. And then I also, then I I moved in and had an analyst. So I did psychoanalytic therapy myself. And that's really, that experience is what really encouraged me to then do my own training in psychoanalysis. Cause for me, that was, that was invaluable. I took Prozac for a little while. during medical school and it was helpful. It helped my mood a little bit. I was less irritable. <laughs> Probably helped people around me. <laughs> I slept better. But to me, the my psychoanalysis is really what I think really helped me be depressed and then just have this insight and awareness and do what I need to do to keep myself not depressed.
0: So not
1: <laughs> gonna it is. I've been good for a
0: while. Was, was there a do you remember a certain point that you're like, all right, I need to start Addressing this, or I need to get help because, like, was there a certain point that you remember, or is it just like a a slow trickle, like death by a thousand cuts type of thing, where you are like, all right, oh, at some point you're yeah, like, all yeah, right, no,
1: I there is it. a there is a very specific event because I was it was a slow trickle, but I was an intern and I had in terms of like being on the Prozac. I had I had 2 days off a month and I had this dog that I was made an appointment for to go get groomed. And I uh and so I only had a few hours and I and I was very particular. I'm a particular person probably you even figured that. out And uh I don't like to leave my dog in a cage all day, right? When I make an appointment. So, I had made extreme efforts. I had this one day, right? I call and make an appointment. I drop my dog off at eight or whatever. And then I go back at 10 and they hadn't even started grooming the dog. And I pretty much lost it. (laughs) Like I was (laughs) like, okay, Martha, right? Like, yeah, life's too, I mean, it's not that big of a deal, right? Yeah. So I always thought nobody lost an iron arm or a leg, and so I'm like, okay, Martha, like you are way too reactive and irritable and stressed. Like there's a problem here. Yeah, and the interesting thing about the Prozac, because I remind patients about this too, like those SSRIs it was my first exposure, like in my brain probably to that serotonin. You know, I hadn't used other drugs, and but I live in Manhattan Beach in Southern California, and I was at UCLA, so you drive along the coast, and I've been driving along the coast literally for five years, right? And I take this Prozac, and I'm started driving along coast and I looking over and I'm like, wow, like that is a gorgeous ocean. And that beach is amazing. And it was just such a, like, same thing. It's like, I had been years, like, thinking I wasn't that depressed, knowing I probably wasn't feeling great, totally not appreciating, like, this beauty around me. And it was such a stark, like, wow, Martha, like, that to me was also eye-opening in terms of like, oh, like literally I've been driving around here five years and like, oh, there's the ocean. And all of a sudden it was like, oh my gosh, like that's gorgeous. Right. And even now I go to, I get to, I mean, it's like it's amazing, right? When you can be at the beach and see nature like that. And I like literally had been missing out on that, um, for a very long time. So and 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 it was good like for a while. But I think the Prozac. Once again, it it helped for a while, and then I think it was the other work that I really needed to do because you sort of feel like it's like the creepy thinker it's coming back, and and then I got into the the analytic therapy.
0: Yeah, I like how you've had it's you know because I feel like a lot of people have it's bad experiences with the prescription medication. They go to the alternatives, but sometimes you need both. Sometimes you need one. Sometimes you know I read a lot, and and I tend to. Be skeptical of prescription mm-hmm. medications myself sometimes just you know sure. you read enough and you're like you read enough of anything you get horrified but it's important to note that like sometimes it does help uh, absolutely it doesn't there is a broad spectrum of ways to address these issues and you know i think everyone needs to understand that there's not one way no no one size fits all, all right there's no one solution but mm-hmm. you could there are different avenues to go down and and you know to try and see what fits is, is important here
1: absolutely like yeah you should repeat that a million times because I think that's right I think that that inhibits people from getting help sometimes right just feeling like oh it means I have to be on a medicine or if I'm on yeah. a medicine I'm a medicine for life or right like just to realize no there we have we have a lot of options for people and, and, and medicines do work sometimes and work well. And then that's great, right? Somebody take it in the privacy of your own home. It's not expensive. It works like wonderful. And then there's people that don't even, even if it would work for them, they don't want to take it. medicine. And yeah. I highly respect and value that too. So, but I think the main thing is to realize, yeah, you're not alone, right? I mean, yeah. you know, depression is, I think the top worldwide disability in the, in the whole world, depression ranks number one, sober heart disease, everything. Right. I mean, and I think the stats are like one in five people in the United States have a mental health, you know, mental illness diagnosis. Right. Like You're not alone. So just speaking up is the first step and then realizing helps out there. And, and that the variety of help these days is pretty amazing. And the accessibility with telehealth and like, yeah, you owe it to yourself. In my opinion, you deserve it. Right. Yeah. You're entitled to to at least talk to somebody. Because I always remind people of that too. Just you know, get some information. Information is so important. It doesn't mean you're obligated to to do anything either. Just get informed.
0: Yeah. And insurance is starting to cover these alternative medicines, which is also important for a lot of people. That because I know Absolutely. when I've looked into ketamine therapies, they can be pretty expensive. Uh, yeah. Especially you know th- you know uh, alternative therapies in general. I've done a right. bit when it comes to physical rehabilitation and. Some right. of them were great, but they were not covered by insurance. So it's, you know, right. accessibility is a big issue. Uh, and it's nice to know that some of these effective alternative therapies are becoming covered by insurance and that's the accessibility is going to be there, which is yeah. super important.
1: Yes, invaluable.
0: So yeah. this was awesome uh yeah i have like we could stop here or i have another question might be too like we could edit all this out but okay. i it might be too personal uh just based on something you mentioned you mentioned you your relationship with your daughter Is that something oh, yeah. that you're comfortable talking about because like uh, it you know it, it's completely fine if not but tying into your personal mental health journey i'm sure that has impacted that and Sure.
1: No, I think I'm I'm totally comfortable from my standpoint. I want to say
0: for 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 my
1: daughter, i probably shouldn't,
0: um, because I don't know if that
1: would be appreciated.
0: Um,
1: but I appreciate you asking really. And yeah, if it would just me, if it just involved me unilaterally, I'd be more than happy to, to talk more about it, but because it's, it's just me and somebody else, I probably should avoid that.
0: Okay. That's completely fair. What about your father? All right. uh,
1: my dad was an amazing man. He passed away. Uh, it's yeah, and that's a good question because it's a real reason why I'm interested in the psychedelics. One a, a a main reason. My father passed away from multiple myeloma in 2005. So you know. uh, yeah, I mean, very. I feel we were lucky and blessed that sort of. I had a good four and a half years with him. Um, so from his diagnosis to to when he passed away, and so there was just you know a lot of very. Great, really, really good time spent. But um, I do think that in our medical system, we don't do end of life well. You know, I think yeah. it gets pathologized. I don't think people access resources, and I and I think there's a really great place in terms of uh, in terms of the psychedelics, but psilocybin in particular. You know, yeah. in the '60s when the research was being done, you know, we didn't talk about this, but historically, the main things that came out in terms of efficacy of the psychedelics were for death and dying, uh, addiction. Um, those were like the two main ones: alcoholism and and cancer. And, yeah. and so there's a lot of good research on that. It just makes that people process their death better with yeah. less anxiety and more acceptance and, and work through things in life. Maybe they felt they haven't had the capacity to work through, which would always be, you know, my ideal fantasy when I die, it would be nice to feel like you didn't have leftover business. Right. So so I'm I, I'm really looking towards when psilocybin gets FDA approved to be able to to really use it for um, end of life distress, because I think it's it's going to be great for that that population
0: and so your relationship with him and his passing did you and you think that inspired a little bit of your your passion for these psychedelics? yeah actions?
1: yeah I mean, I was I was great on the relationship front, which was nice and having that time. But but his death wasn't easy, right? For him, he was in yeah. a lot of pain. multi myeloma, for people to know, it's like you get lytic you get lytic lesions, like holes in your bones, right? It's a it's a yeah. cancer of your bone marrow cells, pretty much. And so we had a lot of pain, um, a lot of bone pain, and we kept him home. You know, he didn't like, Luckily, we were able to do that, so we got to be at home. But he certainly wasn't comfortable. I'll yeah. say that and i i think if he had had that that process i think he could have been in in less pain and and also he clearly had some anxiety right about dying that i think could have
0: been uh,
1: ameliorated
0: i think we i think most people do right
1: yeah absolutely
0: and yeah. uh that could be a a helpful part just for yeah. everyone in general yeah. you know the way we look at death is certainly in the western world at least it's very separate from the rest of life right right and uh the more you uh, when you interact with death you start to think about it more and more and you start to have a relationship with it whether you want to or not and right. so you start to think about why don't why the, is this the first time i've been thinking about it why do i why why do we usually shut it out and i think right. There's something personally. I think there's something there between you know not having a relationship with death and our just general anxiety and thoughts Mm -hmm. about life. uh, There's something there that I think maybe psychedelics can help bridge. Agree, absolutely agree. Yeah. Last question. It's something that I want to start asking people who I have on who I I keep. I used to actually. I forgot to ask twice already on the two previous. (laughs) And it's a little bit intense of a question, but if your father was here. Today, what's one thing that you would say to him?
1: Oh, that I would say to him, "Oh I love you
0: I uh, like that's beautiful. Martha, thank you so much for being on. And thank you, everyone, for listening. and bye.